where I was leading finance for most of North American operations, worked in the Netherlands a lot, a little bit in France, a little bit in Germany. And my wife and I were not headed towards missions. And I praise God that we were faithful church members, and this book, uh, we were faithful in this book. And that's where we ended up getting our missionary call, was reading our Bible and the counsel of our church elders. And I would encourage uh, many of you in here today uh, to turn away from some of the terminology that is common in missions today, the calling of missions. We don't see that in Scripture. That's a modern invention. When I was in uh, Papua New Guinea on my last five years, we had an annual conference. I was in charge of about 250 missionaries uh, spread across Indonesia, Papua New Guinea, and Thailand. And we did an informal poll how many of you ever got a missionary call before you ended up coming over here. And not one of them. They all got their call from their scriptures and from the confirmation of their local church elders. And so that was the same for us, and we decided that we were going to leave uh, the job that I had, and we were going to go somewhere where the gospel had never been heard before. And so we headed off to two years of training uh, to go to the last unreached language groups today, uh, it will take some significant training to get into those particular locations. There's a reason why the last 3,100 or so unreached languages, they have no gospel, no disciples, and most importantly, no church. There's a reason why they're the last ones. They're, they're difficult to reach. They have hard-to-learn languages. They're in countries that are uh, fairly hostile to the gospel. And so to get into those locations and to stay long enough to see a church planted that's going to take some particular skill sets. And so that's what I do. Uh, that's what the team at Radius does as we train uh, your church members to head to the nations, to places where the gospel has not gone yet. And so we headed over to the country of Papua New Guinea. Uh, if you're going to go to unreached language groups today, you have to learn two languages. You've got to learn the language of the country, and then you've got to learn the language of the particular unreached language group within that country. And so it took us about a year and a half to learn the national language, uh, my wife was getting up to speed in that, and then we started looking for places to go. And Papua New Guinea is this unique anomaly of a country. It has a tremendous amount of languages, most languages and cultures on the face of the earth of any country. And so we, uh, we ha we'd heard about this people group called the Yembi Yembi who had been asking for missionaries. They weren't asking for Christ. They were asking for all the benefits that came with missionaries, and uh, there were five others like them. And the Yembi Yembi had been asking for seven years and there was a couple other groups that had been asking for more time. And so we ended up selecting the Yembi We moved in among them. We had to go in by motor canoe. A motor canoe is a canoe about as long as this room. And it's got an outboard motor on the back of it. And it goes up rivers really slowly. And it's really tippy. It's a great ab workout. But um, we got in that canoe. We made our way to Yembi And if you make it into Yembi today and you are a Christian, we don't call people Christians there. We call them crossers, ones who have crossed from Satan's side to God's side. Uh, if you're a crosser, the Yembis will greet you with the traditional greeting. And when we got in there the first time, they took a huge hunk of mud, they shoved it into our face, pushed it all the way down to about our Adam's apple, took diced up flower petals, whipped those at our face, and they stuck to the mud. And now we were beautiful. Now we were ready to come into the village. And so that was our introduction to coming into Yembi for the very first time. Myself and our two coworkers, uh, we went in, we took a bunch of video, we took some language samples. And we came back out, we sent an email off to our home church in Claremont Emanuel Baptist Church in San Diego, and then to the, the guys' other churches, and we talked it through with our wives and the mission leadership, and we decided that this was the place that God had us going. And so three weeks later, we went back in, 
and we told them that we're going to be your missionaries, and we're going to do four things. Number one, we're going to learn your language and culture. We're going to learn to speak like you speak, because the message we carry is too important to get wrong. And number two, we're going to teach you how to read and write in your own culture. We had to develop an alphabet for them. They had no written orthography, so we had to teach them how to read and write. But first, we had to learn their language and figure out what were the symbols in their language. And then number three, we're going to take this really important book, and we're going to translate that book into your language. And then number four, we're going to teach you the meaning of that book. And so when we've done those four things, we're going to leave someday, but we're not leaving until those things are done. And I remember the Yenvies, uh, they were really excited because they knew they were going to be here a while. Um, <coughs> and the Yenvies came to us and they said, okay, if you're going to come and you're going to live among us and you're going to do these four things, we don't want you to come like outsiders. We want you to become insiders in Yenvi Yenvi. What that means in Yembi is that everyone is connected. There's four clans. There's the ostrich clan, the eagle clan, the black cockatoos, and the toucans. They're all birds. And so they looked at me. I'm kind of tall. I got long legs. Um, I played a little bit of college basketball, so I got a little bit of a crooked nose. And they said, you're definitely in the ostrich clan. So they put me in the ostrich clan. Uh, my wife's got long blonde hair. They put her in the eagle clan. You can't marry people from your same clan. That's a bad idea. And then they put all of our coworkers into different clans. And then about three weeks uh, when we were there, they came to us and they asked us if any of the men had ever killed a wild boar at night with a spear by themselves. No, I haven't done that. <laughs> because in Yembi Yembi, for a boy to change into a man, he has to kill a boar at night with a spear by himself. Otherwise, he's never allowed to marry. And there's a huge house about as big as the room that we're gathering in. Uh, that's called the House of Men, and they're never allowed into that. A boy changes into a man when he does this. So they came up with a new name for us. They called us Overgrown Boys. <laughs> we were these massive-bodied guys that had somehow been allowed to marry and father children, and yet we had never killed a wild boar. And so we're learning the language and the culture of the people, and simultaneously we're learning how to throw a 10-foot-long spear, how to sneak up. Six-foot-two guys do not sneak well in the jungle. And just trying to get up to speed on YMBMB life so that when the gospel comes, it doesn't come from an outsider. It comes from someone that they know, someone that they respect, someone who has walked the trails with them. Aren't you thankful that the Lord Jesus didn't send angels? He didn't drop the gospel to us from heaven. He came and he lived with us. He ate our food. He knew our customs. He walked the paths. He bled. He cried. He was in every way like us except without sin. And this is the model that we see the gospel going forward to unreached places where Christ's servants will lay down their rights, lay down their opportunities, lay down their options so that the gospel will be clear to these people. And finally, after two and a half years of learning their language and culture, uh, we got to the place where we were fluent. We could tell jokes and they would laugh. Uh, we could understand jokes and laugh at the same time as everybody else. We knew the color, the nuance, the simile, the metaphor, all of the beauty. Every language is, man, it's a gift from God and it has its unique way of communicating these terms. And so, we finally got to the point in 2008 in January where we started the teaching. And we did not start in Matthew. Uh, we didn't start in Romans. We started in Genesis 1-1. And we started teaching. And the first day, nearly the entire people group, the entire tribe that we were at, about 1,200 of them, showed up for the teaching. And in Yembi Yembi, uh, they are not like you guys. You guys uh, have sat in some form of institutional learning, most of you, for your entire lives. 
they, they'd never sat in that kind of a setting, and they would sit in a circle around the teacher. This is very common when someone gets up to teach or someone gets up to share. And the Yembis, uh, we started walking them through the, their gods versus this god. And by that time, we had put through two literacy classes, people who could read, and I was getting ahead. My responsibilities on the translation team eventually were to translate the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and then all of the Gospels except for Mark and all of the Pauline epistles. And so we had some of the Pentateuch, and so we would teach in the day, and at night I would go home and work really hard on the translation and continue to get ahead of what we were teaching. And to see the Yembis start to recognize the difference between their gods and this god, who was so different, who made all things right, and we, had, we got to the point in creation where God creates all the things in the water and in the land. The Yembis have 12 different kinds of bananas. They have 14 different kinds of sago. And we had a canoe that was running kind of the length of the room or the outside house that we were meeting in. We flipped the canoe over and we had all these different foods out there. And then one day we flew in foods that they had never seen before. By that time we had an airfield. And the pilot brought in apples and oranges and pears and things from different... And then we actually flew in a sheep because the sheep was so central to what we were going to teach. Yembi's mouths were watering as the sheep gets off alive. Um, <laughs> but the point of it being, look at all of these foods. Does God eat food? No. Why did he make such incredible variety? Because he loves you. He loves me. He cares about the ones who he makes. This is a good God. And our guys were falling in love with God before we got to Genesis chapter 3. What an incredible God. He's so different from our spirits, so different from those that we worship. And they started seeing this God is different. This God is on their side. This God is for them. And then we get to Genesis chapter 3. And like I said, the Yembis, uh, they're, they're not like you guys. If the Yembis like what you're saying, even today when you're teaching in the church, um, they will yell from anywhere, keep talking. This talk is good to my belly. So their belly is the seat of their emotions. In North America, it's our heart. My heart is broken. My heart is full. That's kind of a common uh, Euro or European, North American way of looking at it. They'll also, though, if they don't like what you're saying, they'll yell from anywhere at any time, enough. I'm about to throw this talk up. And again, it's coming from their belly. And so you know if you're flying or dying really fast. And so we're teaching, and we would teach, and we would act things out, teach and act things out. And as we started to teach Genesis chapter 3, which, brothers and sisters, Genesis chapter 3 is the linchpin of all humanity. I don't believe someone can understand Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John unless they understand Genesis chapter 3. You don't know what you're being saved from until you understand the, the riveting points, the way that all of human history hinges on the fall of mankind. And so we taught these things and then we started acting them out. And the Yembies are watching what's happening. And so when we started acting it out, I was Satan. I had this black bedsheet. My co-worker's wife was Eve. And we're walking around in a circle and the Yembies start crowding. They get up and they get closer and closer. You've got a thousand people pressing in. So we're walking in about a little four-foot circle and I'm whispering to her, Eve, Eve, just take the fruit and your eyes will be open and you'll be just like God. And the Yembies are yelling from the sidelines, hey, smart lady, look at your belly. Where did all that food come from? And I mean, they're, they're into this skit because they don't see fables and fairy tales. They see their ancestors. And what happens to their ancestors will trickle down to them. And my coworker's wife reaches out. She's getting ready to grab the fruit. And one of the ladies jumps up and grabs her hand and starts pulling her hand back down. 
And we had to stop this kid. And she said, she's about to eat through. I know, but there's more talk. There's more to the story. And she sits back down. My coworker's wife takes the food, takes the fruit, takes a bite, and a thousand people go quiet. And we start talking about the ramifications of what just happens. And in those types of environments, uh, women having pain in childbirth, when we moved in, there was about 25% of the girls that would die in childbirth for the first time. This wasn't some academic thing. From dust you came to dust you will return, uh, real in their context, how we bury people over there. It doesn't have the same um, sanitariness, I would say, to what we see in North America. All of these ramifications, but there's a promise in Genesis chapter 3 as well that says, someday I'm going to send someone who is going to make things right between God and man. Someday that one will come. And guys, as we continue to teach the narrative, I'll never forget this. Uh, we stepped up the next day and we started getting into Cain and Abel. And one of the Yembies in the back, uh, when we introduced Cain, he said, wait, wait, wait. He stood up in the back and he yelled. And he said, stop the talk, stop the talk. This one that you speak of, is he the one? And I said, what, what do you mean by that? Is he the one who is going to make things right between God and man again? I said, no, he's not the one. He's not the one. But keep listening to the talk. And everybody turns around and just yells at him. This is typical Yemi culture. Ah, that's a horrible question. And then some people that are close, actually, that's a really good question. I didn't want to ask it. But. And every Old Testament character that we went through, whether in public or in private, somebody was asking us from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, is he the one? Will he be the one? And brothers and sisters, that's the whole trajectory of the Old Testament, pointing to the one to come. And finally, we get to John chapter 1, and I translated John the night before. We get down there, we print it out, and people are starting to read John chapter 1 for the first time. And as we get into John and we're teaching this, and John the Baptist looks across the river Jordan, he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we had about seven yembi yembi stand up in the back, and they said, wait, 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 wait. This one that Jono was speaking of, is he the one or are we waiting for another? Because it was a privilege in my life at that point in time to say, no, he's the one. He's the one. In fact, I'll tell you this. He's the reason we left our homes. He's the reason we left our families. He's the reason we're living among. It's all about this one. Oh, my goodness. People, like we had about 100 people standing. Stop the talk of John who dunks in water. Who cares about him? Tell us about this one. <laughs> and the whole trajectory of the teaching, and I, I don't have time to get into everything that happened as we pressed into that story. And finally, on April 28, 2008, for the first time in the Yembe Yembe's history, in the BC's language history, there were people who understood who this Jesus was, that he had died for them, that his sins had made them clean, that they had a pathway to be made right with their God again. Guys, we had the kernel of a church there, and we continued to teach, continued to translate for another eight years, stayed with them to see that kernel brought into a fully-fledged New Testament church with its own elders, its own deacons, and now as they send out their first missionaries, uh, Lord willing, in the next few months to another people group that is close by them. So that's the backdrop that I'm coming at this at. So Matthew 28, if you have your Bibles, let's touch on Matthew 28 before we get to Romans 10, 13 through 15. If you look in your Bibles, there are four other great commission passages. There's one in Mark 16, one in Luke 24, uh, another famous one in Acts 1.8. Uh, 
But the primary one, when people are thinking of the Great Commission, comes out of Matthew 28, 16 through 20. So I'm going to read this passage. If you have your Bibles, I'm reading out of the ESV today. I read this passage and then just make three quick observations. So we set the table for Romans 10, 13 through 15. Matthew 28, 16 says this, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when he saw them, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So just three quick observations that we can take away from this. Number one, if you call yourself a Christian, you're a man or you're a woman under authority. Christians are people under authority. Christians are people under authority. Paul was fond of speaking of Christians. He primarily used two motifs when he was talking about Christians. He would talk about athletes, and he would talk about soldiers. Athletes and soldiers. Those are, once in a while, he'll dip into farmers, but mostly it's athletes and soldiers. But the soldier motif of being ones who are under authority. And we see how Jesus commended so many. We, only, we never find any time where Jesus or an interaction with a Roman leader, with a centurion, one who is in command, the centurions tended to be above average caliber men. The Roman government got their top leadership wrong, but their military leaders tended to be above average. And the motif of a soldier, I am one under control. I am one who has a master. And for the Christians that were bought with a price, we no longer belong to ourselves. Our passions, our desires, the things that govern us, the things that direct the steps of our life, those are no longer ours. We have those, but we're subservient to a king. I speak at a lot of different college venues, and there's usually some young man, some zealous young man who comes up afterwards, and he hears the story of the Yembe-Yembes and the hunting of the boars, and we had lots of crocodiles, and we had to build a house with solar panels, and we were out in the middle of the jungle, and we had to build an airfield out of scratch, and all of these types of things. And he just said, man, that's so good that God gifted you for being like in the outdoors and for, for doing that type of stuff and that you have a passion for being in those types of environments. And I didn't used to say anything, but usually I will launch into some version of, brother, that's not even anywhere close to my passion. My passion, honestly, I'm, I'm a San Diego guy. I love sushi. I like city. I like smog, cement. Like my wife and I don't ever go camping. We just, we don't. The most camping we do is we go to the beach. That's it. The furthest thing that I desire is the Yembe Yembe context and the jungle. Like that's so far off the radar. I still go back every year to check on that church and I brace myself. I bring a lot of ibuprofen and a few other things, but it's not about what you're into. It's not even about your giftings. God may use your giftings. Man, my gifting was in business. I was excellent at international accounting. That was where, but I didn't get to use my business background nearly one time for the 13 years that we were in Yembe Yembe. God may use your passions. He may use your giftings, and he may not. And he has the absolute right to do that because he is the one who governs our life from beginning to end. If you are a person under authority, if you're not a person under authority, 
If you're one who decides where you go, what you want to do, when you want to do it, there's another name for that. It's the opposite of soldier. You know what they call those people? Mercenaries. They call their own shots. They have no king. They have no ruler. They do as they please. But if you're a Christian, if you're a Christ follower, you belong to the king. Number two observation that we can take away from this, the glory of God among all peoples. The glory of God among all peoples. There's this passage right there in the middle, and I won't belabor this too long, but where he says, go to make disciples of all nations. The Greek in that is the pontata ethne. Ethne is the word that we get ethnicities from. So Jesus isn't saying go to all geopolitical nation states. This isn't the verse where we say, okay, we've got to go to Mexico. We've got to go to Sweden. We've got to make it to these other countries, Iraq, Iran. They have to have the gospel. That's not what that means. What it means is we make it to every ethnic group. We make it to every ethne. The marching orders of the king are we press on. And this is where Acts 1, 6 through 8 can be so helpful. The, the dynamic of the gospel always works outward. It always presses outward and goes further and further to Jerusalem first. Praise God, Jerusalem has the gospel. To Judea second, to Samaria third, and then to the ends of the earth. And every one of those places has been reached except for the ends of the earth. I'm encouraged if any of you have uh, read uh, John MacArthur's book, 12 Ordinary Men. It's about the disciples, the apostles, and what happened to them, not just pre-Christ, but also post. I think that's probably probably the most valuable part of the book is what happened after the Lord ascended? What did they do with their lives? And one of the shocking things I think that's in that book, of those who heard the Great Commission from Jesus' own lips... What did they do with their lives and where did they end up? And did you know that of the 13 apostles, remember there's 12, we lose Judas, but then we get Matthias back in there. And then you've got Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. You've got these 13 guys that are generally known as the apostles of the early church. Those 13 guys, of the 13, 12 of them died in foreign lands. Only one of them died in his home country, James. Every one of the other ones died in a foreign country, taking the gospel, planting churches as they continued to go. This was the heartbeat of our God. You take this and you press on and you keep going to every ethne. You keep going past Laodicea, past Galatia, past Rome. You get to the Spains. You get to the Englands. You get at Paul's time as he presses on in Romans 15. You go to those furthest reaches, the glory of God among all peoples. And then number three, the primacy of the local church. The primacy of the local church. If we're looking at the Great Commission, we dare not pass over the finish line of the Great Commission. The finish line is not just making disciples. The finish line is gathering those disciples into strong New Testament churches. Think of all the things that only local churches can accomplish. Most people will love to quote Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then it gets cut off. But there's a verse, there's still one more verse left to go, and teaching them all that I have commanded you. Friends, that's the local church. Think of all these things that only local churches can accomplish. Churches are commanded to baptize new believers. 
That doesn't happen at summer camps. It happens at local churches. Churches are commanded to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Churches are commanded to regularly gather. Churches teach the Word of God. Churches raise up disciple, confirm new elders and deacons. And through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the world. It's through the church. The goal is that this church, CLC, your church plant, CHC, the Yembe Church that is way out in the middle of the jungle in Papua New Guinea, my home church back in San Diego, California, Claremont Emanuel Baptist Church, those bastions of light, those outposts of heaven will continue to exist when every one of us, if the Lord tarries, if the king chooses not to come back in the next 70, 80, 100 years, we're all dead and gone. These churches are still going. They're rooted deeply. And the Yembe Church, the mission to see churches planted, so my son... My grandsons, my granddaughters don't have to go back to that language group again. We establish churches. We raise up disciples. But if a disciple is ever to reach maturity, he's got to be a part of a local church. He must be rooted deeply. And we dare not pass over that as the great commission. We press into these people groups. We see the gospel brought forth. We disciple them into strength. And we gather those disciples into local churches. So we move to our passage with that backdrop to Romans 10, 13. If you have your Bibles, we'll reread this passage. Romans 10, 13. Paul, the history, this is just a brief snapshot, the history of the book of Rome. Church history tells us that Paul was in prison in AD 63. He's acquitted of all charges. Then he goes and visits Titus. Then he goes and he writes the books of 1 Timothy and Titus. And then in A.D. 57, prior, he sends a letter. Before he gets out of the prison in A.D. 63, he sends a letter, a really important letter to a very dominant church that he never visited before, and he lays out his doctrine. He lays out his philosophy of ministry. He talks about what he believes. And this book, at the end of this letter that he sends out, he also asks this church to support him. And this is what we have today is the book of Romans. So, 63, he gets acquitted, but in 57, he writes the letter, and he tells them, I believe these things, and I am pressing on to go to Spain. Will you support me in that missionary endeavor? Most people don't know this, but Romans is a really doctrinally tight missionary support letter, probably the best missionary support letter ever written. But he writes these things, but before he gets to Romans 15, he lays out his philosophy of ministry. How are the nations to be reached? How are we to get to those places that still have no gospel? And he says this, Romans 10, 13 through 15, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So let's take this piece by piece, and let's look at some of the statements and some of the, the points that he makes in this. Number one, if you're taking notes on this, this is, the patent, this is the area where we'll talk about the God who saves. The God who saves. What a sweet and wonderful truth that regardless of income, sex, race, citizenship, number of divorces, jail record, or any other kind of worldly unpardonable sin, God saves those who call on his name. Everyone who calls on the Lord 
will be saved. This is central to our faith, that God saves sinners. If you want to summarize the entire book of Romans, God saves sinners. But it's the Lord who does the saving. You never hear a Christian who is clear on their salvation give their testimony that starts with, when I understood the facts, when I finally had enough knowledge, when I was finally smart enough to grasp the gospel, no. It's always, I was saved from my sins when the Lord broke into my world. My salvation was when God made me capable of understanding and believing His message. There was a popular kid's book when I was a kid uh, that I used to read, and it had this boy who was swimming across a river, and he was about to drown, and his grandfather was reaching out with his hand, and the boy's stretching, and the next page you flip, and their hands meet, and he saves him. That was the analogy of the gospel. And brothers and sisters, that's a bad analogy. You know what the right analogy is? The boy made it to the bottom of the lake, and he's dead, and the fish are chewing on him. And the God of heaven pulls him out of the bottom of lake and breathes life into him. That's the right analogy. We had nothing to do with our salvation. And the God of heaven reaches down and he saves people. And this isn't a popular thing in this day and age, but for thousands of years, and probably more so in our time, there's this idea that humans are intuitively good. We're mainly good. It's our circumstances. It's our upbringing. It's our income level. It's what happened to us when we were raised as children. That's what turns us bad. But the Bible says the opposite is true. The Bible says that the problem isn't outside of you. The problem is actually inside of you. The problem is actually part of you that you were born with. And if the Bible's right, then the answer doesn't come from within you. It comes from outside of you, an answer, a solution, a Savior that does something we are incapable of doing, of saving us from ourselves. The Reformers and the Puritans used to call this an alien righteousness, something that was foreign to us, that was outside of us, would come back to save us. And true Christians realize that there's nothing within themselves other than than this alien righteousness that can save them. When we taught the Yembis this uh, concept of needing to have someone to save, uh, they came up with this man. Remember that Yembis don't call themselves Christians. Their common term is bridge or crossers, ones who have crossed from Satan's side to God's side. See, in Yembi, we have these huge rivers. Um, some of them are as wide as this room. Some of them are wider. And they'll... they'll if they're crossing a river and there's no bridge there, what they'll do is they'll designate a team of guys and they'll cut down a huge tree. Sometimes it'll take days. And that river or that tree will cross the whole river. They'll fall it so it'll cross over and they don't have to hike for miles around and that bridge will be there for quite a long time. But as that tree gets skinnier towards the tail end, you have to be really sure-footed to make it across the tail of that bridge. And so what they do is they designate one young man, young and strong and sure-footed, and it's his job to take the children or the older people who are crossing on that bridge to carry them across. And he takes them from one side, they jump on his back, and he carries them over that tree all the way across to the other side. And the only job of the people on the back, you know what the job is? Hold still. Just hold still. The bridge man, and this is what they called the Christ, the bridge man who takes us from one side to the other. I could not do this on my own. 
I needed someone to physically pick me up and take me across. Praise God for a bridge man who saved us from our sins, who broke into our world, who brought us out of the bottom of that lake, who breathed life into us so we could understand the gospel. We're not saved by our own merits. We're not saved by our goodness. We're not saved by our church attendance. We're not saved by any measure other than we were saved people. We were saved by the graciousness of our God. But then there's the second half, and this is what we're going to focus on mostly today, the means of salvation. The means of salvation. You see, there's this version of Christianity that says, if God is the only one who saves, and we don't have any work to do, after all, God will do the saving, then what's my point in this? Why do I exist? If God is the only one who saves, do I even have a role in this? But this is a misunderstanding of Scripture. God does save, but we see in Scripture that He uses tools. He uses, most commonly, ordinary means through Christians. Sometimes in history, in the Scriptures, if you look through the Scriptures, He uses burning bushes, He uses donkeys, He uses angels, but most commonly, God uses His people. He uses Christians to convey the message. God does the saving, but the tools that he uses are the people who sit in the pews, are the people who regularly attend Sunday services. Paul explains this, these ordinary means, and he uses a series of rhetorical questions. Let me read this part to you again. Verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Rhetorical question, by the way, high school uh, English class. They're questions that we all know the answer to. We don't have to have anybody say the answer out loud because we all know the answer. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And the bottom line is they can't. There is this prevailing idea that sometimes sneaks in that, well, there's those people over in the depths of Papua New Guinea I know of three particular people groups now, the Garamambu people, the Niksek, and the Amto that still don't have missionaries. 2,000 years, no missionaries. What will God do about them? And there's this idea that, well, surely there's another path. And Paul is stating here, and he states it so clearly in Romans chapter 1, there is no other path. There is general revelation, what we see around us, the stars, the sky, that shows us that there is a God. But unless someone goes, unless someone preaches, they still go to hell. There is no third path for those who never hear the gospel. That's why Paul hones in on this so so much. How will they hear? Implicit answer, they won't. How will they understand? They won't. How How can they grasp the gospel and someone preaches the word to them? They can't. So we press into these things. Here's the three, three keys to this going. Someone has to go. Someone has to go. If the gospel is to made clear, someone's got to get on a plane. Sometimes you get on a bus. Sometimes you get on other vehicles. But someone's got to go to these people if they're going to hear. John Piper, uh, in his, one of his sermons, he'll outline this passage. Rooted in this passage, he'll come up with a motif, and he calls it goers and senders. There's goers who go. 
And there's senders who send, and we're going to talk about the goers and the senders in a little bit. But John Piper will say, if you read this book, if you believe this book to be true, every one of us are either goers, senders, or disobeyers. There's no fourth category. There's goers, there's senders, and there's disobeyers because someone has to get to these locations. So number one, someone has to go. And then number two, the goers need to know their Bible. If they're going to preach, they have to know their Bible. One of the things that is a hallmark of modern missions right now is that we have a lot of zealous people. They hear a John Piper sermon. I love John Piper. He's been a very kind friend. Uh, he's done our conference a couple times. He's going to do these guys' devotions in a few weeks. They hear a David Platt sermon. They hear someone, they hear a local pastor, and they get excited about missions, but they don't know their Bible, and they don't know their local church. Friends, church history never shows us, nor Scripture shows us, someone going out untethered from the local church, having zeal without knowledge. They got to go, and they got to know their Bible. And then number three, the goers need to preach and teach this message that has been entrusted. The goers need to preach and teach this message. And the implication that we can draw from that from our time today is that they got to know the language of what they're teaching into. They've got to be able to speak the language of the people group that they're going. It's not sufficient to sprinkle tracks on them. We don't pray for angels to come down and reach them. The means that God uses in our time is goers got to go, and they've got to preach the gospel. And if they're going to preach, and it's going to be clearly understood, they've got to know the language of what they're preaching into. They've got to be able to speak with the nuance, the color. They've got to have the background of all of their gods, all of their spirits, so we don't create some split-level Christianity where Jesus is added in and he now becomes one of their gods, but not the God who is overall. This is why you see so much happening on the continent. I, I get nervous when people start talking about the church in the global south. There is a movement of churches in the global south, but a lot of that movement is syncretism. It's the mixing of two belief systems. You don't want mixing. What you want is you want displacement. You want the biblical worldview pushing out the existing worldview so that the God of the Bible is the only God that they look to when their crops fail, when their sons and daughters are sick, when they call on anyone to save them from the situation that they're in. And so we see this, the remaining people groups of the world can never understand the gospel until someone goes and preaches the word to them clearly. God's general revelation is sufficient enough to show them that there's a God, but not enough to save them from their sins. A message through a messenger has to come from outside if they're to understand and believe the gospel message. People will go to hell. They will go to a Christless eternity unless the gospel message is clearly understood. And the clearest it's understood is when somebody preaches to them in their own language. And then there's this second little part that I love the Apostle Paul. He puts this in there, probably the best book on senders. So you got the goers, you got the senders. The best book on senders is 3 John. It's Paul's little letter to Gai or uh, John's letter to Gaius. But this passage in Romans 10, 15, he says this, And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. How are Micah and Rachel to make it there? 
How are those from within the body? And friends, I, I was so encouraged yesterday at the lunch that we had, the good questions that are coming out of this church. You may have families ready to go fairly quickly in here. How are they going to make it to the nations unless they're sent, unless there are good senders that stand behind them? And here's the three marks of good senders that I would write down. Because there's only probably just looking at this church, and this is a, a regular church, there's maybe 10% of you in here that could be goers, that could get to the ends of the earth, that could take the gospel somewhere where it's not been, if we're talking about unreached language groups. But there's about 90% of you in here that could be good senders. And the question is whether or not you're going to be a good sender or a bad sender, because you're going to be one or the other. And the three marks of good senders. Number one, good senders raise their sons and daughters to be goers. Good senders raise their sons and daughters to be goers. John Payton, and you'll see his biography on the back table. There's an autobiography that he wrote. He's one of the most famous missionaries ever. He made it to the island of the New Hebrides uh, back then, and his church had sent a series of missionaries out of just about 15 years prior, and they had been cannibalized and eaten. And John Payton makes it to the island, and over a series of time, he finally makes it to the island of Aniwa, and he sees the gospel brought to that people group. And he would come back to Scotland, and he would stand in front of a church, and he would say, um, he, there was this famous song that people used to sing back then, and it started with the stanza, give our sons and daughters glorious to the nations abroad. And John Payton said, uh, he stood up in front of the church, and he said, everybody loves to sing that song as long as we're talking about somebody else's sons and daughters. When you start talking about your sons and daughters, it starts to become a little personal. It starts to become a little uncomfortable. Do we raise our sons and daughters on certain books, on certain DNA? Do we put them in situations where they can understand, if mom and dad see you go to the nations, we'll be proud of you. We'll drive you to the Tampa Bay airport. We'll have tears in our eyes, but we'll be proud of you. We'll stand behind you. Or is it someone else's sons and daughters who are called to go? We raise our sons and daughters to be goers. Number two, good senders live in such a way that the Great Commission affects their life here. They live in such a way that their house, their car, their 401k are bent towards the nations hearing the gospel. There's this famous missionary named William Carey, and he went off to India, and him and his friends, before he jumped on the ship, nine months to get to the country of India, first English, uh, he was an Englishman, first guy to make it there, and they made this pact, and they said, I, him, William Carey said, I'll go down the well if you'll hold the ropes. And I know you guys know that term here very well, but uh, William Carey, uh, when he was down in the well and he came back up, came back out of, he never made it back completely out of India, but as he was leaving, uh, one of the things that they talked about with each other, and I firmly believe this is, someday when the king returns, he's going to ask the guys who go down the well, show me your hands. Show me the scars that you have for the gospel. But I think those who stand at the top of the well and who lower the rope down as well, the king's going to return someday, and he's going to ask you, show me your hands. Not your church's hands, not CLC's hands, not your Sunday school group, your hands. What did it cost you to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth? Did it cost you anything? What will we say when we stand before the king someday? 
and we show them our hands. And then finally, good senders are faithful church members. Good senders are faithful church members. The Bible knows nothing of Lone Ranger Christians that are apart from the local church. I praise God when we came back after 13 years of being over in Yembi in the second row, there used to be Jack and Mary Alice Griffin before we left. And Jack and Mary Alice stood behind us, and Dave Johnson used to sit right to their right. And when we came back 13 years later and I got up and I preached at our church, there was Jack and Mary Alice. There was Dave Johnson. Friends, we put a lot of stock in these guys, these radius students that are going to go to the nations. This is going to take 10, 15, 20 years. This will take the best years of your life. If you're going to see a church planted among these people, and we press into them, don't go unless you've counted the costs. Count the costs, know what the toll will be, and then go to the nations. But know that this will be a long-term endeavor. And friends, as you send them out, and you pray that they'll be faithful, that they will stay the course, what about you? When they come back someday, will you still be here? Will we let incidental things like presidential elections and coronavirus, all these things that have happened, will these be the things that move you, the type of singing, ah, the length of the service, or will you be here? Or is it only the goers that are called to be faithful? Good senders are faithful church members. They're faithful. We see them on Sundays. They're involved in the local body. They're helping out with the outreach to the international students. They're active in their faith. They're faithful where they're at. The marks of good senders, do they know their local church? And are they faithful where they're at? May the king find us faithful when he returns someday. May we each have scars on our hands for taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, whether we're goers or we're senders. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for our brother, the Apostle Paul, and the way that he teaches and the way that he weaves in good theology with the methodology of the gospel to the ends of the earth. May we reflect well. May we consider what you would have us to do. Lord, I pray for the ones in this room who potentially could be goers. Give them uncommon courage for 2023. Courage to walk away from dreams, hopes, giftings, potential opportunities, great jobs. Courage to step out, to be radical goers, to go and to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And Father, I pray for the senders. I pray for the parents in this room that possibly would see their sons and daughters go to the nations. Give them the same courage. May they be men and women of conviction that see the end of the journey more than they see the beginning. And Father, someday when you return and we all stand before you, may we be proud of the way that we lived. May we have the scars to show how we invested in your kingdom being brought to all nations, all ethne, all peoples, all languages, all nations. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.